Welcome to the arena. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here for this special Remembrance Day episode. Canada's mission in Afghanistan involved the deployment of over 40,000 Canadian Armed Forces, the second largest deployment since the Second World War. Sergeant Lauren Ford was one of the first Canadian casualties of this conflict in what became known as the Tarnak Farm Incident. A total of 158 soldiers were lost in Afghanistan between 2002 and 2014, with many thousands more returning with wounds seen or unseen. The Canadian flag was lowered for the last time in Afghanistan on March 12, 2014. If you are unable to attend a Remembrance Day ceremony, I hope you will take some time to listen to this story. It is a story of loss, but also of resilience. After our conversation, I will read the names of the wounded and fallen from Tarnak Farm. We'll listen to the last post, and then there will be two minutes of silence. Thank you for listening. First of all, thank you so much for your service and for sharing your story with us. Oh, you're welcome. I always have a short intro for the people that I speak to, and I put this together Sergeant Lauren Ford is a son, father, paratrooper, and decorated Canadian soldier, whose one great wish was to lead his soldiers into battle. He was given his opportunity when he became section commander of three section with the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. He was headed to Afghanistan. It was six months after planes flew into the World Trade Center and 2,977 people were killed on September 11th, 2001. He was deployed in February, 2002. And on April 17th, 2002, he was part of the worst friendly fire incident since the Korean War. I am honored to be speaking to him on this special Remembrance Day episode. Thank you, Lauren. You're welcome. Well, there's a lot to cover here, but I wanted to start off with some childhood memories, if I may. What was it like sitting around the dinner table in your household? I was born in Brampton, raised in Oakville. We were in Ontario housing, so subsidized housing. Had a lot of friends, busy with sports, and my family was fantastic. I was brought up with my single mother uh, and two sisters in the household. I had a total of four sisters. My mom had a steady boyfriend who was around for a very long time who helped raise me. He was a very strong influence in my life. However, the biggest father figure I had was George. I met him through the Big Brothers Association and we hit it off immediately. He is the biggest reason for pretty much the man that I grew up to be and that I am today. And we still talk to this day. I consider him my father. That is very easily said. I I love him. I love his family. Without his guidance, without his strong family values and everything that he passed on to me, honestly, I think it it could have turned out very different for me. I'm sure he's very proud of you. Well, I hope so. We still talk, of course, and and yeah, he does say that and it's very nice to hear. Are you willing to talk a little bit about Tarnak Farm that night in April of 2002? Absolutely. I can talk. Uh, there's nothing out of bounds between us. I can. I will talk about anything. I will get emotional. Sometimes you think it's always gone until you do these types of interviews. 
So I can pretty much guarantee that's going to happen, but that's okay. It's good to talk about it every once in a while. And I, I have no issues talking about anything. Tell me about that night you were doing a live ammunition drill, if that's... Correct. So we had already been on Operation Harpoon, which was uh, a joint mission with the Americans and Canadians on what we called the Whaleback, a certain area in Afghanistan, which was a long ridgeline, a few kilometers long, I believe. Uh, Very mountainous, up and down, clearing ravines. No, I personally, we did not see any combat or fire weapons at the enemy. We had been on operation with the uh, intelligent report that there was anywhere up to 60 to 80 uh, Taliban on that whaleback or that feature. So we had already done that, cleared it, and then we came back through Bagram and continued into our uh, rotation of training, refitting, and getting ready for the next mission. So at Tarnock Farm that night, we were doing a live fire, kind of like an anti-tank range up the wadi and before that we had grouped in zero weapons uh, for the night the c9s to make sure everything was hitting where we were aiming uh, typical nothing different nothing complex at all you know move to your left go up the wadi engage the targets and with the fire control orders uh, with the 84s and the m72s and machine guns firing just at section level uh, with the weapons dead attached. So that was with a, you know, a medium machine gun attached to our section. And I was off to the left flank, allowing my second command to run the show. So I had very little to do with it, except for monitoring and assessing my two IC to ensure that if anything happened to me, ironically enough, that he was uh, as well trained as he could be. So it was his show from the get-go, giving the orders, a quick fry go off to the, you know, the objective area up the wadi and continued on. And there were some points to pass on. We were nearing the end of the, the live fire itself when Ricky, my soldier, fired an M72. And I actually, probably thankfully, should have been wearing my hearing protection, but wasn't because I wanted to hear everything that my 2IC was passing along. And once he fired it, I moved to the left. I turned because there's a loud ringing. And I actually turned to the left and walked a few feet away. I can't remember, maybe 10 feet away at the most. And it continued on. The 84 fired, heard the plane go overhead, which was not uncommon. I mean, we were close to the airfield. Just kind of looked up and back down. And as I was looking up, heard the bomb coming in, heard the whistling, and knew instantly what had happened. They don't have aircraft, so whoever it was had just dropped a bomb on us. And then it was the explosion, the fire, the light, the chaos immediately afterwards. I knew I was hurt pretty badly. I could feel the blood. It was all dark, of course, but I could feel the blood. There wasn't any pain at the time. And I was calling out for help. Uh, I could tell my left hand was just covered in blood, and it was my leg. You just automatically reached for my leg and I knew something was wrong. I just didn't have a clue what. They got to me from what I thought fairly quickly, a couple of uh, very good friends of mine now who were not medics, Chris Kopp and Rob Coates were the first two to me. And I could hear them kind of questioning if they should put a tourniquet on. And it was, they were like, yes. Like, so I was like, oh, okay. It might be worse than I thought. And they were cutting 
equipment off me and getting to my clothes so they could look at it and uh, could feel the tourniquet going on. And at that time, I still don't remember the pain. I, I just remember there was a lot of talking to me. There was just a lot of people around. The pain, the, the pain was starting to come. And then I remember going, okay, they're putting a tourniquet on your leg. That's okay. You know, tourniquets are supposed to save the lives and not the limbs and kind of the way that we were trained, which at that time we didn't carry our own tour- tourniquets. Since then, our combat first aid has gone through the roof and amazing training. I was like, all right, all you have to do is keep breathing. Just keep breathing. So I remember the OC, you know, just talking to me, you know, the stuff you hear in movies. Hey, look at me, Lauren. You're going to be fine. I was like, yeah, uh, you just, you don't quit. It did nothing flash before my eyes. I didn't see no lights. I didn't think I was going to die. I didn't pray. I was saying, just keep breathing. And I remember actually had my hands were on my chest and I was like, you know, I, I bet if I just gave up and just said, no, you know what? I'm done. I think I might've died. And of course I was like, yeah, that ain't happening. And then I asked about all my troops. I went through in my head, all my troops, how they were. And they're like, don't worry about it, Lauren. They're fine. And I was naming them. I was I just went through how's Paquette, how's Oliver. And they were saying, he's okay. He's okay. And I got to green and nobody said anything. Um, now I'd lost a lot of blood. So from then it was kind of hazy, but I think I even, might've said his name again. And, um, they just wanted to focus on me. So they just kept telling me to hang on and all that stuff. So I heard the helicopter coming in, they were loading me on and the pain was there. Now there was a lot of pain and, you know, the helicopter landed on the other side. I just remember them loading me into the helicopter. And then obviously I had passed out. What were your first thoughts when you woke up? I remember waking up, still picture the room, the legs heavily bandaged. I was obviously very groggy, just trying to find out and figure out what the hell happened, reaching down and then reaching around my head. And it was just dirty and disgusting. And there was this huge patch covering over my eye and I had no idea anything had happened to my eye. And this male nurse came in. I was just like, okay, what ha- what's going on? What's, where am I? All these no, and he's like, okay, no one's talking. I said, no, I don't, I don't know what's going on. There was probably a lot of profanity at the time. So he ran out and actually got a doctor. And I can't remember who actually told me, but I think it was my troops, because eight of us went to Germany with injuries. And he had said, well, this is kind of what's going on. They've operated on your leg. They've looked at your eye and this, and then the rest is pretty much superficial. And I wanted to know what had happened. I honestly cannot remember who told me, but I think it might've been Curtis Hollister who was injured at the time and shone the light on. On the four guys that were killed that night. And, and then just being devastated, um, seeing my guys from the section parry into care. And then Link was there. Paquette, I didn't see him because he was actually, he had some pretty severe blast injuries to his chest. And Hollister, and there was a bunch of them. And so there was a lot of, not not details, but what had happened. 
And a lot of crying, a lot of anger, pretty much every emotion you can go through happened that night or for the week I was in Germany. And then was the visitations. The governor general, Adrian Clarkson at the time, their husband came for a visit, but did a lot of talking with Curtis about the incident and our feelings and the immense feeling of guilt, which I've never felt like this before. So it was new, it was frustrating, it was, but it was very sad. To this day, I can't explain the guilt. Like I, and I don't know why. We know we had nothing to do with it. We knew what had happened. Of course, I had found out the American pilot dropped the bomb, killed four of our guys, the eight injured, which we all knew was needless, which was obviously a huge mistake. I think one thing that helped me and I hope helped Curtis was the two of us talking for quite some time and in days on end and telling each other, we have to get past this. We didn't do anything. Everybody felt guilt. They all say survivor's guilt. I get it. And that was probably it. But I think that first week in Germany talking so much about it and pretty much coming to the realization that yes, we didn't have anything to do with it. It wasn't our fault didn't change the fact of, I still thought it was my fault, <laughs> which is the strangest feeling because I still can't really describe it accurately, I don't think. But the tightening of the chest, the, the crying, the depression, like just the sadness, the heavy sadness you felt, you know, losing, um, <clears throat> losing one of your own soldiers. <clears throat> uh, yeah, is... Um, because you think everyone's going to come back. You know that that even before going over, we knew there was a good possibility that some of us are not going to come back, but you think you're invincible and you're going to do fine. And you think everyone's going to come back. So that loss is so palpable on how you feel and the heaviness obviously still sits, but you know, you, you get through it because there's nothing else to do. You can't, you can't wallow in, yourself pity you can grieve which we did quite often and talk about it which helps immensely and i think the sooner you talk about an incident i i believe the better uh with people that went through it it's very hard to talk and because i know they understand what i'm going through i will talk about it with anybody with any civilian or whatever but there's a different level of understanding that they're very compassionate. They lend you an ear, but they do not know what you went through. Um, but, and that's why it's important to talk with soldiers. If somebody that you go through something, you go through a like incident, it is because you do know they understand and that they're not feeding you a line of bullshit. And yeah, the bottom line after that is there was huge amounts of lessons learned through the medical side what we should carry. Um, so a lot of that, you know, good things came out of bad. And yeah, transferred back to Canada, a month in the U of A, month at the Glen Rose rehab, and then out. Uh, and then you, you carry on. And there were dark days in the hospitals, of course. But you like when I went through the airborne, the thing that really hammered is that it doesn't matter what happens is that you never quit. You just never, ever give up. And 
I think that how you are before an incident absolutely has an effect on how you are after an incident. Because I think I've rolled pretty seamlessly into, all right, so you won't be able to do what I believe I was brought into the world to do, which was to be a section commander and lead troops. So what can you do? What can you focus on? I was a parachute instructor. There's a, many courses I had. I can instruct. I wanted to stay in. So I said, all right, then you can be the best at that. You can be the best at whatever the military. And there were times when I thought I was getting out, when I was going to transfer trades. I didn't want to, but I knew that they were possibilities. And you have to be ready. You have to plan. And thankfully, the 3rd Battalion accommodated me, and I'm still on a contract, and I'm still serving. So it's how you take it on yourself to focus on what you can do. You can think about the past, absolutely, and remember the soldiers and their lives and how great they were. But you have to carry on. You have to focus on your life and getting back stronger, as as strong as you can be, and be optimistic. Because regardless of how bad things can get, and that's in any walk of life, in any job, civilian, military, it doesn't matter. Things will get better. Things can get better. And you have to focus on your strengths and what you can do. In reading your story numerous times, it said it could always be worse. And (laughs) it's always about perspective when you're thinking, wow, compared to what I'm going through right now, you always have that as a reference point, I guess, when you're facing something that is really difficult in your life. It sounds like that has really carried you through the many challenges that you've had. Yeah, so many, many years ago, I don't know where I picked it up. I was optimistic to a point where it was actually frustrating to a lot of people. When we're out in the field, regardless of how cold, tired, and hungry, and wet, and lack of sleep, lack of food that you are, like I just, I was the guy that would smile and go, well, it can always be worse. Even when I was in the hospital, it was easy for me to live up to what I said. Again, um, I was alive. That's the biggest thing. I by far did not come back with uh, the most gruesome injuries that a lot of soldiers did. Yeah, I lost my right eye. I limp. Well, boohoo, too bad. There's guys that came back bilateral amputees. And then through the Invictus Games and other soldier-on events that I went to, like uh, triple amputees. And I'm just talking about physical injuries, not even the, the non-physical injuries. So what I came back with was <laughs> nothing. I've met so many veterans that have been injured, both visible and non-visible. Some of it have it very bad, and I understand that. I could still pull up a scenario where it could be worse. I I really could. But that is just the way my mind, and that's the way I work, is I have a fantastic life right now. I don't regret one thing, because you can. If you dwell in the past, you're just not going to make it, because I have so much I have to do still as a father and still as a serving member of the forces and I have to concentrate, I have to be positive, I have to stay fit. So to me, there's just no other way. It's just, you do the best you can in daily life and and be the best person that you can. And sometimes we're not, and Mm -hmm. that's okay. Sometimes we just can't be that. You get angry, you go through emotions. We're human. This is a bottom line. But at the end of the day, when you go 
am I doing the right thing? Yeah, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm doing the best that I can. That's all we're asking. What impact do you want to have on the world? I don't focus that big. I focus on my boys. I want to help mentor and be the best father that I can be. Teach them the right things, right from wrong, being considerate, hardworking, with all the good values that George taught me. And it's going well. I'm so proud of my boys of, you know, what they've accomplished, what they do. Every day you learn something different to adjust and continue to grow in relationships that you have. I have plans on when I get out and what I want to do. Don't know how it's going to go yet. But the thing is, I have plans and I'm still in the military and I still love what I do. I still get to go up into planes and dispatch paratroopers and train them. I've been promoted um, to warrant officer. And I have my own platoon again. So I'm back on the floor with troops, which to be honest, I never thought I was going to have. Now I'm not a section commander leading them and at the tip of the spear and running with them because that's not going to happen. So things have almost come full circle and yeah, there's still something to be said that when you can influence positively on the troops that are coming through the system and learning the skills. It's a breath of fresh air. I'm doing an infantry job. I'm doing, doing it as a warrant officer and I have to do the best that I can and train my troops so that if we deploy anywhere that I know that they are ready to do their job. Career-wise right now, I could not be happier um, in the situation that I'm in. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to say that, that I haven't asked you already? I'm not going to sign off by saying it can always be worse, but things will get better. It doesn't matter what you go through. And some people will not believe that. And I get it. I, I totally get it. But there are things to look forward to, especially if you have children. You, you can't give up. There's always something to look forward to. When I was in the hospital and going through my downtimes, I was never a self-pity wallowing in my sorrows because I've been around those people and they're not bad people, but it brings everybody down. And people are walking on eggshells. So I would always joke and laugh and go, I'm fine. I'm good. And of course, the first time I, I had so many people come and visit me, you know, they'd walk in and they're like, oh, Hey, how you doing, man? I go, it's just me, man. Just talk to me. It's just Lauren. Don't worry about it. Let's just, okay. What's going on with you? And so I was never into that because it, it would absolutely affect negatively on other people. And I've been in the hospital, I've, I've visited wounded soldiers and I would walk in knowing because I'd already been through that. I just walk in if I know them and I won't say it here because there's profanity, but I would call them names and walk in and go, Hey, blah, blah, blah. How are you doing? And they appreciated it because we're still the same people. We're still there. We're still the same person I was before. I wish I could pinpoint when that got instilled into me, but I can't. To me, it's accumulation of having amazing role models, excellent leaders in the airborne, and then surrounding yourself by like-minded people, which is how we choose our friends, and having the support and just everything that goes with it and physical and mental well-being before an incident, before a traumatic incident, I know helps how you recover and how you come out of an incident. Because I don't think I've changed that much, actually. Some people will have a differing opinion on that. 
But a lot of, yeah, you're still the same. You're, you're still the same dude. I, I would love to help people that go through traumatic experiences. And I've always volunteered if people want to talk mm-hmm. to get through whatever, to get whatever it is, visible or non-visible injuries. It all happens. I know sometimes it just can't, it can sound sickening by, oh, it can get worse. Don't worry about it. It'll get better. But I can just say it, it can, and it will get better, but you have to mentally Number one, you have to accept what you can't do anymore, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and then focus on, if you have kids, focus on them. Focus on picking up another hobby, picking up something and, and get good at it because everyone has skills. Everyone can do something. And if you focus on that and then really pick something that you love, like you'll flourish. You'll do extremely well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll need help. Some people still need help, but that's what makes us human. And if you realize that, I, I believe it can take you a long way. I've been told by many people that yeah, you've gone through a lot and you've actually almost accomplished more since your injury than you have before. Again, I attribute that to a lot of people that were in my life and that helped mold me and that never quit and never die attitude that if you surround yourself by positive people, because it can have the negative effect. Oh yeah, poor you. Like I'm not a believer in that. Get people doing their own stuff, get them moving and movement and getting active is so important. You have to find something that is inside of you that you love and and then go after it. I believe if you have a purpose and it's hard to find that purpose, but if it's just to get to the next day and make supper for whoever, or take care of someone or walk a dog, well, that's purpose. And they get you out of bed, get you changing your mindset. Sounds like you have a lot to offer to the men and women in uniform to your boys and uh, if I may say to the world. So I'm thrilled that we had a chance to speak today. It was good to talk about it again and, and it's good to reminisce. It's good to think about the good things. There's many examples of positive outcomes. And yeah, I'd like to think that it is that I'm one of them mm-hmm. because well, I'm still doing it and I still love I don't get up in the morning dreading work. I love putting my uniform on still. I've been doing it many, many, many years. Thank you so much. I, um, yeah, this is really meaningful for me to have this opportunity to, to talk to you. And as much as you say that, yeah, lots of people have stories like this. There are a lot of people who don't, who aren't able to pull themselves out of that spiral after a major event in their life or have a lot of difficulty overcoming what's happened to them, maybe didn't have the mentors and really struggle. I think it's really important to be able to share stories of triumph, of overcoming, of striving and learning how to do that. And as you say, it could always be worse. That it can. Yeah. Thank you, Lauren. All right. Thank you, Linda. Wounded. Sergeant Lorne Ford, age 33, Brampton, Ontario. Corporal René Paquette, age 33, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Corporal Brett Perry, age 26, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Private Norman Link, age 24, Grand Prairie, Alberta. Corporal Brian DeCare, age 25, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Master Corporal Curtis Hollister, age 29, Kupar, Saskatchewan. Master Corporal Stan Clark, age 
35, Vancouver, British Columbia. Corporal Shane Brennan, age 28, Collingwood, Ontario. Killed, Sergeant Mark Daniel Leger, age 29, Lancaster, Ontario. Corporal Ainsworth Dyer, age 24, Montreal, Quebec. Private Richard Green, age 21, Mill Cove, Nova Scotia. Private Nathan Lloyd Smith, age 27, Porter's Lake, Nova Scotia. May we remember today all of the men and women who serve and who have served. Thank you for your service.